the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Fletcher. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, it's the 40th anniversary of the Iran hostage crisis. 40 years ago this week, the Iranian regime took 50 U.S. diplomats in 1979 and held them for 444 days. And it was a watershed moment in our foreign policy that I think people, that is still having reverberations today, not just in the Iranian regime that is still an enemy and an, and an adversary that we really, our foreign policy is focused on, but just in the way we conduct foreign policy, how foreign policy flowed out of that period where Jimmy Carter was president in 1979. We had the, uh, we had the, the Malays speech. We had the gas lines. We had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. We were projecting weakness in the world. We really were in a period where we thought that America, that a lot of people thought America was in decline. And then came this hostage crisis where this little podunk country, I mean, it was the great Persian empire once, but this little country was willing to slap us in the face and take 50 Americans, take, overtake an embassy and take us hostage for 444 days. And we were powerless to do anything about it. No, we were paralyzed. You know, it's funny. So people of a certain age remember this well. But for anybody who isn't of that certain age, it's really hard to describe how this loomed large in the American consciousness. You know, when history gets taught, when people focus on this era, they tend to focus on the fall of the Shah and the arrival of Khomeini, which happened in February of 1979. And that really wasn't it. Yeah, okay, that was a bad thing. And, you know, people noticed it. But what really riveted normal people, people outside Washington, was this American embassy being taken over by this group of rabble Islamist extremists. And this was students. all over our screen, students. right? So-called students in yes. some cases. But yeah. um, but it was all over our screens. And folks, you know, it wasn't like you could switch off and go to HBO in those days. We had four TV stations, if you included PBS, and this was on all of them. I went back, actually, to look at a little bit of video from this period. And, man, it just, it was saturation coverage. Let's play a little bit of that right now. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy, fought the Marine Guards for three hours, overpowered them, and took dozens of American hostages. The students want the deposed Shah returned to Iran for trial. United States Marine Corps guards used tear gas to try to disperse the mob of Islamic students. But that wasn't enough. Hundreds of Iranians finally overran the embassy compound, seizing about 90 people, mostly Americans. The hostages, men and women, were blindfolded and herded into the embassy's basement. So you can really hear, and you know, of the iconic moments, and we're going to talk about one of them next week in, the, in our in our great anniversary series. You know, where you see the fall of the wall as an iconic moment, the fall of the Soviet Union as an iconic moment, uh, Kennedy's Berlin speech, the Berlin Airlift. This was, and especially for our involvement in the Middle East, this was a huge iconic moment. And this was also the start of a four-decade-long struggle with Islamic radicalism. So, you know, most people today have living memory of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, but this all began two decades before that 
with the rise of the Iranian regime, the Shia, because the two faces of Islamic radicalism. There's the Shia face of Islamic radicalism, and there's the Sunni face of Islamic radicalism. And for the first two decades, we were at war primarily with the Shia face of Islamic radicalism. We're talking about the fall of the Shah in 79. The hostage crisis begins. And a mere four years later, we have more than 200 Marines killed in an Iranian-sponsored attack against our installation in Beirut. And we cut and run. And we cut and run under our beloved Ronald Reagan. Yes, exactly. And this was one of the things to the Iranian-sponsored attack in Beirut was one of the things that directly led to the 9-11 attacks because Osama bin Laden saw he in his writings. I wrote a speech for President Bush. I remember he called me into the Oval Office once and he said, I want you to write a speech about the terrorists in their own words. I want you to go and read Osama bin Laden's writings, read what they say that they want to do. And I went back and read, and it was amazing how often Osama bin Laden referred to the Beirut bombings as evidence that the Americans were weak and decadent, that if we just hit them hard enough, they would run. Right. Uh, just like we did just we did in Beirut, just like we had in Vietnam. And this was evidence that al-Qaeda could get us to leave the Middle East if they just hit us hard enough. No, this is really important because, you know, again, we look at this from, from Washington's perspective. And it, it, that obviously skews how we see this. But but from the perspective of the region, this is a huge break with the past. And, you know, we're, we'll talk about this a little bit with our guest, but you have, you know, the post-World War II era in the Middle East and you have the end of colonialism and, you know, one king after another falls to to socialist and communist-backed younger leaders, none of whom have any staying power. But there's turmoil, but it's really, it's local turmoil. You know, it's not the stuff that... Not this... the kind of stuff we need to wade into, as some, <laughs> as some famous president uh, said in uh, around uh, 2011. And it doesn't represent a huge break with the past, which is really what the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the subsequent hostage crisis represent. It represents the beginning of our age of enmity with Iran, around which so many of our activities in the Middle East swirl, whether it is, you know, to whether, this day. To this, well, of course, to this yeah. day. I mean, when you talk, you know, Hillary Clinton says crippling sanctions and Donald Trump says maximum pressure and, uh, and Barack Obama talks about the outstretched hand. And of course, what they're all talking about is the Islamic Republic of Iran. No, that's exactly right. We talked about just talked about the bombing of the Marine Barracks in Beirut. There was the Kobar Towers attack in, in uh, 1995, where uh, Saudi Hezbollah, which was, was supported by Iran. Not just supported by Iran. Funded. I, I, there is a court case, and you and I dealt with this when we were on the Hill. There is a court case in Alexandria, Virginia, where the Iranians are directly fingered for responsibility for that attack on Kobar Towers. Yep. The Clinton administration would never do anything about it. Yet another instance where we've sort of caved in front of the Iranians. And then fast forward to just a few weeks ago when they launched an attack on uh, Saudi Aramco. And so we are dealing with the fallout of this revolution and of this hostage crisis to this very day. And no president has been able to handle it. Yeah. It's flummoxed every president, Republican, Democrat. Jimmy Carter was terrible. Ronald Reagan left Beirut and uh, struggled with how to deal and we with this. Keep going Barack from Obama there. tried appeasement. It didn't work. President Trump now is trying maximum pressure. This is Iran has flummoxed every leader uh, in, in the last 40 years. That's true. But there's another thing that has happened with Iran that I think we don't get. And for some reason, we keep not getting. And that is 
how formative this event was for the Iranians. Yeah. It wasn't just formative for us and our relationship with them. It was formative for them. Their hostility towards the United States is a pillar of their regime. Like hostility towards Israel, hostility to the United States is the touchstone, probably one of the most important after the Quran, is a touchstone of the Islamic Republic's leadership. And so I don't understand why it is that each president of the United States, with very, very few exceptions, comes in and wants to start secret talks with the Iranians, including <laughs> our beloved Donald J. Trump. And including our beloved Ronald Reagan, who sent, uh, what was it, a cake in the shape of a key oh. <laughs> to the earth <laughs> You know, go, go look it up for those of you who don't it, remember it, that embarrassment. Mark and I aren't going to tell you about it. That it, it, it certainly really deserves happened. to be forgotten. Today, most of the leadership of Iran are children of the revolution. They were there during the hostage crisis. They were there during the founding of the regime. They are not going to suddenly abandon the revolution. As long as that revolutionary generation is still leading, uh, there's not going to be detente with the with the Iranian Republic. This is, look, this is a touchstone for the Iranians, and I think that our failure to appreciate that has led us down the garden path paved with those paving stones of good intentions that lead to hell. I'm sure I mixed like 10,000 metaphors in there. I'm really As sorry, always. folks. Well, we've got a great guest to talk to us about this today. So Ken Pollack is a, is a resident scholar at AEI. He, he used to be at Brookings, but he defected over here. And, and <laughs> we're so delighted to have him. Before that, he was at the National Security Council. He actually served twice on the NSC. And before that, he, uh, he was at the Central intelligence agency. He's written a bunch of books. His most recent book isn't about Iran, but is just an amazing piece of work, Armies of Sand, about Arab militaries. But he wrote a book about this. But before that, he wrote a couple different books about Iran. The first, one of them, Unthinkable, Iran, the Bomb, and American Strategy, and another called The Persian Puzzle, the conflict between Iran and America. I really do commend it to everybody, and I'm so happy that Ken was able to join us. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. So we're here marking the 40th anniversary of the hostage crisis in, in Tehran. Take us back to, uh, to the hostage crisis. How did this unfold? Give us a little bit of the history for people who have forgotten. Sure. Well, first, 1979, February, is when the Shah leaves Iran. Actually, leaves in January. Khomeini arrives in February. That's really the beginning of the Islamic Republic. And let's understand, there's chaos in Iran at that time. It's like most revolutions. Everyone could agree that they didn't want the Shah. They were all in agreement that he had to go. But once he's gone, there are all kinds of competing factions trying to gain control. And the Islamists, led by Khomeini, are just one faction. They're trying to assert control, and Khomeini is a very well-respected figure, so they've got that advantage. But they're fighting against liberals, against Marxists, against a variety of ethnic groups who are trying to go their own way. They're trying to hold this whole thing together, and they're trying to build a new society. And within that grouping, you've got different people pushing and pulling in different directions. The hardline Islamists at some point realize that a very efficient, effective way for them to kind of rally the public around them is to create an external enemy in the United States of America. And so as we move from that January, February period where the Shah goes, Khomeini arrives, and the power struggle begins, as we go into the fall, of 1979, the Iranian factions are looking for ways to assert themselves, and this, this hardline Islamist faction really kind of hits upon the United States of America as the scapegoat, as the way of 
alienating everyone else, discrediting all of their rivals. Now, there are lots of students very angry, very angry about lots of different things, happy that they've overthrown the regime, not clear what they're going to build in its place. They tried to take over the U.S. embassy previously. They had taken part of it, but the Iranian government had moved back in and said, you guys get out of there. That's not how we want to do things. In the fall, though, it becomes clear that there is a group of students that is once again thinking about doing this. And this time around, they are encouraged by the hardliners in the Islamic party. We don't really know what the conversation looked like, but it is very clear that there was support behind the scenes and this group of students egged on by these hardline elements goes and takes the U.S. Embassy. And the moment that that happens in a period that we have seen repeated over and over again right to this day, this domestic political issue inside Tehran suddenly explodes into a foreign policy problem, one that sucks the United States in in a way that we never wanted to be. And what's amazing about this is that, I don't want to say by accident, but let's say by a little bit of happenstance, the Islamic Republic kind of congeals around this virulent anti-Americanism from this pretty confused maelstrom beforehand. Now, all of this was helped by the fact that the Shah of Iran has left and come to the United States. So that helps focus and funnel the anger of the regime. But let's just talk a second about that day, because I certainly remember it very well. So, you know, students storm. We've got Marines outside. Anybody who's seen a U.S. embassy knows we've got Marines outside protecting them, but they quickly lose control. What happened? Well, a decision was made that we weren't going to resist, right? And look, it's a perfectly understandable one. The ambassador's out of the country, and the decision gets made that we're not going to be able to fight off all of these different students. If the Marines open fire, they'd kill a lot of people, but in the end, they'd be overcome anyway. We will have killed a lot of Iranians and will have worsened a very serious diplomatic incident. Right? And the assumption was at the time, and this is typically the assumption made by diplomats in these kinds of circumstances, is look, we can't really defend ourselves in this kind of a circumstance where you have thousands and thousands of Iranians literally coming over the walls, busting through the gates, many of them armed. You've got to rely on the host country to defend you. And again, as I said before, this had happened already in the spring, and the Iranian regime, such as it was, had intervened and had cleared out the protesters and the demonstrators and had restored the embassy. And the expectation was that they would do it again. And so that was the decision that was made. And ultimately, it turned out to be wrong because, again, the Iranian regime, the nature of the Iranian political system had changed between the spring and the fall, where you had had the emergence of this hardline element within the Islamists who were looking to gain power. Right, who were you know, really looking to kind of seize all power for themselves, who saw the United States as their enemy. And so this was the first clash between the United States and Islamic radicalism. This was the Shia face of Islamic radicalism, but this is a clash that has defined our relations in the Middle East for the last 40 years. And you say that they chose to confront the United States as a political tactic, as a way to sort of push out the other factions within Iran who are competing for power and consolidate their control. Were we a target of opportunity or was this inevitable? It's a great question. Again, I think, I think it's a combination of the two. So as I said, first, Many Iranians had a kind of 
certain amount of anti-Americanism, again, based on the Mossadegh coup, the support for the Shah, who had become very unpopular by the time he was overthrown, right, and a variety of other things allowing the Shah to come in. So there was a very strong reservoir of anti-Americanism among Iranians at the time easy for the regime to tap into it. Second point, many of the Iranian leaders actually believed it. You know, I think Khomeini, when he said that the United States was the great Satan, I don't think that he was being euphemistic. I don't think that he was being figurative. I think that in his own mind, he was speaking literally. And there were other Iranian leaders. One of the issues that we have now with Khamenei is that while Khamenei clearly does see the Who is the successor of Khamenei. I apologize. Yes, Yes, the current supreme leader of Iran. Ayatollah Khamenei clearly does see the United States as a useful foil, right? He has told people that we need the United States as an enemy to justify our control over the government. There's that. But there is also a part of Khamenei that is deeply paranoid, that believes that the United States is coming to get him. So I think that there was a legitimate sense of fear and paranoia on their part that also played into this. One of the things that uh, that only people of a certain age recall is just how large this loomed in the United States. So these guys are taken hostage, our embassy employees, more than 50 people. They're ultimately kept for 444 days. And I don't just remember that because it's 444. I remember it because it launched the career of somebody who you know, Ken. Um, and, and if I could sort of who? take Ted Koppel. So um, uh, Ken's father-in-law, if there I'm allowed you to say, right. you know, bring in family members on the podcast. But what happened was that there was, you know, ABC News started covering this and there was intense interest. And of course, it was all wrapped up in what was becoming the fast unraveling Carter presidency. The president is under so much pressure. He decides very out of character for Jimmy Carter, peace-loving Jimmy Carter, not, you know, the terrible Nixon, not an awful Republican, decides that he's got to send in a rescue mission. Right. Operation Eagle Claw, which was... uh, well, I won't use the term that's coming to mind, but the euphemism <laughs> in the military is Charlie Foxtrot. Right? Yeah. Uh, boy, uh, is that ever a mess. But, you know, you're absolutely right, Dave. This, it, it captivates America. I can remember it as well. And, you know, as you point out, Nightline started off as America held hostage. Yes, that's right. right. That was the actual title at the time. And it was stunning. And I think a part of it was just that, you know, most Americans... But think about that phrase. Yes. It wasn't the American embassy held hostage. It was hostage. America. It was America held hostage. Exactly. There was, you know, they had done this to us. How dare they? And why, right? There was, you know, ignorance about the U.S.-Iranian relationship and their grievances against us and our role and all, whatever you want to throw into it, right? But there was this shock and outrage that, you know, they had done this to us. And then, you're absolutely right, Dave, then the question became, now what are we going to do about this? So tell us about the Charlie Foxtrot. Yeah, well, you know, Operation Eagle Claw was, um, it was an interesting idea. Um, It was one of those where, you know, boy, was it ever a long shot. The idea was that we were going to airlift special forces into the desert outside of Tehran. And the special forces team was going to go into Tehran, rescue the hostages, get them out of Tehran to another drop zone where they'd be picked up and then pulled out. It was always going to be a very difficult operation. And it doesn't work. 
And it doesn't work because, of course, we're in the post-Vietnam military, which has suffered through massive neglect. There is, you know, real problems with morale, with maintenance, with readiness, right? And it all kind of comes together in, you know, the perfect storm in Operation Eagle Claw. And, you know, one thing worth noting is that while it was a horrible humiliation, say what what happened because there was a crash as well. Right. Well, exactly. We lost troops out there. We had planes that actually collided, right? It was it, it was a bloody mess. Um, the one thing that we can say was that I think that it was it was a moment when everyone realized that you know what, we've allowed our military to yeah. sink too far. Well, so this came all in the context of a broader picture where the with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh Carter's Malay speech, America had lost confidence in itself. We had the gas lines. There was this whole we were projecting weakness in the world and partly because we were weak in the in the post-Vietnam era. And it's sort of this all together from the from the inability to rescue the hostages to the fact that people would dare to do this to us set up the Reagan presidency, didn't it? Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right that that the the failed hostage rescue mission is in some ways the most visible symbol of all of that. Right. There's a recognition that the post-Vietnam military is not in good shape. There's a lot of doubt within the military about what its mission is and how it should be doing things. It's not able to buy the equipment. And that's all out there. But until the failed hostage rescue mission, I don't think that it really gets driven home to Americans of what it means. And that, you know, again, going back to points that you both made, we've suffered this unbelievable humiliation Right. This little country, you know, it's got a government that it seems to be trying to pull it back into the 12th century as fast as it can. And they have inflicted this humiliation on us. And we're mostly just kind of sitting there and taking it. And we finally try to do something. And it's this kind of, you know, bizarre triple bank shot that just fails miserably. And I think it's a critical moment when Americans realize we want to have the power so that we can do this properly, and more important than that, so that no one ever does this to us again. This episode really does launch this sort of Islamist revolutionary power idea. And that the Iranians have really been effective and influential at building this as a model that now Sunnis have adopted. But, you know, they, they talked about exporting the revolution, and we've always kind of laughed about that phrase. They haven't exported the revolution, but their model of Islamist extremism, their support for terrorist groups, and their abilities really did, they seemed to gel at that moment. And and a lot of the guys who were the students, and I think that they were students, many of them at the time, who took the hostages, still loom large in Iranian politics today. Sure. Although what's interesting is on that last point, you know, we're increasingly having these former Iranian students coming forward and saying this was a mistake. Right. We should really? not have done this. Oh, yeah. We've had a number in, in recent years. In fact, uh, there was one in the news just the other day where one of the student leaders was coming forward and saying this was a mistake. So t- talk about that a little bit because it's interesting. Well, just, you know, they, they are recognizing that it set them on this course of enmity with the United States, enmity with the world. They marked themselves out as being pariahs, right? 
we should remember that the entire world sanctions the Iranian regime after the hostage taking. And it's something that the Iranian regime often revels in, especially during this period of time, but afterwards as well, because they see themselves as revolutionaries, right? Kissinger's very famous line about Iran needs to decide whether it's a cause or a nation, right? They love being a cause, a revolutionary cause. So there is a, a recognition increasingly, I think, among many of these people, that's not done well for the Iranians, that this is not paid off for them. You know, Iran today is a pretty poor, pretty unhappy country. More poor than it was at that moment, and, and, which is remarkable, right? Absolutely. So they've got these 444 days of hostages that they're hanging on to. And in many ways, that attitude has not changed to this day. It does make me ask why there's so little recognition of that history inside the U.S. government among not just the John Kerry's and the Barack Obama's who were desperate to make peace or the Madeleine Albright's who apologized for, you know, all of our many, many sins over the years in a desperate attempt to to suck up to the Iranians and, and bring us back together again. But why now are we still trying understanding how integral this is and that episode was to their identity. You know, what so many Americans see is they see an Iranian population that doesn't like its present circumstances, that frankly hates the regime and hates the system that they've grown up under. And these are, it's a wildly young population, right? And they desperately want the better relationship with the United States. And the assumption is, well, you know, we've got to find a way to reach out to them. We've got to find a way to help them gain control over their country. And, you know, again, it's a lovely idea. And as I said, I've been part of a couple of efforts to try to do that. It just hasn't worked because this regime is so firmly in control. Right. And and I think we have to recognize that there are two things that this regime is good at. And it actually goes back to an earlier point you made before, Danny, which I wanted to pick up on because it's a very important one. One thing that they're very good at, staying in power in Tehran. Right. And what we've seen from them is they are willing to use whatever force, whatever means are necessary to remain completely in control in Tehran. They show no remorse. They show no mercy. Whoever opposes them gets crushed as much as they need to. That's one thing they're very good at. The other thing that they're very good at is breaking things. Mm-hmm. Right? But you know, it goes back to the point that you were making, and Mark, your point as well, about Shia extremism, uh, Islamic extremism. You're right that it did inspire lots of other would-be revolutionaries, terrorists, insurgents. They've also aided and abetted them all across the Middle East. Anyone who is interested in using violence to overturn the status quo, whether they are Sunni or Shia, whether they are Muslim or Christian or something else, you know, Kurd, Marxist, you name it, the Iranians are in there supporting them. They're very good at bringing down other regimes. They are not good at building anything meaningful, anything durable, and anything desirable in its place. Again, there are lots of reasons why the Middle East is such a mess. But Iran's role in helping pull things down without putting anything positive in its place, it's certainly an element of it. So the first 
half of the conflict of this four-decade conflict we've had with Islamic radicalism. We were pretty much in conflict with Shia extremism. Until 9-11, the Iranian regime was responsible for the death of more Americans than any other terrorist movement in the world, starting with the, the from the Beirut barracks bombing to the Kobar Towers, right? And then the Sunnis get in on the act, uh, and we have al-Qaeda, and we have the 9-11 attacks. And so we've been focused largely for the last few decades on the on the Sunni extremists uh, who, who attacked us and brought down those buildings. There was actually a great deal, even though Shia and Sunni don't get along and hate each other, there was a level of cooperation between these two radical extremist movements. It was uh, Iran that taught al-Qaeda how to bring down buildings. And there was an al-Qaeda cell in Tehran for years that was the only cell that has never been hit by a drone strike. Talk a little bit about the about the relationship between Islamic, between the two factions of the two faces of Islamic radicalism, the Sunni and the Shia faction, and how they interact. Sure, yeah, great question, great set of issues. Uh, so it starts with the point that I just made, which is that the Iranians are interested in overturning the regional status quo. So the Iranian perspective has always been maximum chaos. Anyone who wants to overthrow things is good with us, right? And these you know crazy Salafi Sunni jihadists. They were perfectly useful tools from the Iranian perspective, and they were willing to do all kinds of mayhem. And the more that the Iranians could help them do so, they were glad to do it. We get stuck on this Sunni-Shia divide. The Iranians don't. You know, they recognize when a group like ISIS comes along and invades part of Iraq, which A, threatens their own influence, that is Iran's influence in Iraq, but B, these guys are saying we want to kill all the Shia, right? They can recognize that and say that's too much for us, right? And we will come in and aid the Iraqis in pushing back on ISIS. But other than that, you know, you want to kill people? Hey, have at it. So let's go back to the to the hostage crisis for a second. So, you know, basically this, this crisis produced a critique of the Carter foreign policy, which was epitomized, it was, was outlined by Jean Kirkpatrick in her famous essay, Dictatorships and Double Standards, where basically she said Jimmy Carter lost Iran. Uh, just like he lost Nicaragua, that we, we were making a mistake by not standing with these pro-American authoritarians, and that we basically needed to, his over-focus over on human rights led to this collapse and to all the debacles that came from that. And that led to, the, in part, to the Reagan administration, which came in and was ironically very pro-human rights in the sense of fighting the Soviet Union and, and supporting the democracies in Central Europe, but also got along with, uh, with a lot of friendly autocrats. So I'll offer a few thoughts on that. First, Look, you know, Carter has just endless problems as a foreign policy president, domestic policy president, too. Um, I find it hard to blame Carter for the collapse of the Shah. The Shah made his own bed. The truth of the matter is, as I was talking before, I said, you know, the Iranians have some truth in their narrative, but it's also exaggerated, right? Yes, we did back the Shah. The truth is the Shah made his own bed. And especially as we come out of the 1960s, increasingly the United States is allowing the Shah to run everything. With regard to the crisis itself, the truth of the matter is the United States tells the Shah that he needs to do or should do whatever he needs to to stay in power. Right? There's this incredible moment when the NSC is debating this. Cy Vance wants to tell the Shah that you know he is going to have to do things peacefully. Brzezinski says, absolutely not. All means necessary. Carter votes with Brzezinski. There is a phone call you know, with Brzezinski where Brzezinski says, do whatever you have to and we will back you up. And the next day, the Shah meets with our ambassador and says, you know, I need a clearer signal. 
And our ambassador says to him, you're not going to get a clearer signal. So that's the you know, In diplomatic language, he told you to kill as many people as you need to. And the Shah couldn't do it, right? It's about the Shah and his own psychology. So I find it difficult to blame Jimmy Carter for the Iranian revolution. I'm glad to blame him for a lot of other things, but I think that one is a bridge too far. So how did the hostage crisis end? This is one of those things that, for those of us steeped in the world of Middle East studies, there's still controversy roiling around it. And I'm not going to mention the crazed theories about Ronald Reagan and everything else. But how does it all end? Well, it ends with a whimper, not a bang. I would argue that the biggest thing that happens really is the fact that the Iranians have addressed all of their domestic, that is, the Iranian hardliners have won in terms of their domestic politics. They have removed every single person who is even the slightest bit moderate. They no longer need the hostages, and they even realize that the hostages are a liability. Iraq has invaded Iran, and you have the Reagan administration coming to power. And none of us really knows how the Iranians perceived Reagan. And I agree with you, Danny, I'm leaving the, the nutty conspiracy theories aside. I think that it is clear that the Reagan administration furnished at the very least an opportunity, but possibly also a threat. That the Iranians realized with a new administration coming in, they could claim to have removed Jimmy Carter from power, which they wanted to do. They liked that, right? They liked to say, you removed Mossadegh, who, by the way, the Islamists hated Mossadegh. I was about to say that. Still hate Mossadegh. But they nevertheless wanted to say... You know, you removed Mossadegh, we removed your president, right? An eye for an eye, we won that victory. Reagan comes to office, he's a new president. They're not really interested in kind of turning the page and moving on, but it kind of seems that way. But there is also this question mark of, you know, Reagan does come to office promising to restore American power, strength, authority, all of that kind of stuff. We're not going to take guff from anybody. And, you know, did the Islamic leadership that at this point in time is now mired down in this horrific conflict with Iraq, do they really want to pick a fight with a clearly a very different kind of president than Jimmy Carter, a man who, as you guys both pointed out, was elected to be the anti Jimmy Carter. And there's the famous scene on the first day of the Reagan presidency when he sends Jimmy Carter as his personal envoy to greet the hostages. Tell us about that day. So Reagan is being sworn in and the hostages are landing back here on their flight back. And so, yes, Carter is greeting the hostages. Reagan is being sworn in. You've got these two very different images. And, you know, I can remember the kind of split screens on TV of these two very different sets of images. Reagan taking power, Carter welcoming the hostages home, the worst of the humiliations that he suffered, kind of bringing that to a close, bringing to a close his presidency and the worst humiliation that he suffered while Ronald Reagan is coming to office, coming to power and promising a very different America, one that won't suffer these kinds of humiliations. Morning in America. And on that optimistic note, thank you so much for being with us, Ken. My pleasure. Great being with you guys. First of all, let me say how happy I am that Ken Pollock is here at AEI and that we, that we we have a refugee policy here at AEI, that we accept defectors. So what did, what did you take away from it, Danny? So one of the things I want to highlight for people is something they haven't been paying attention to. Donald Trump has the exact same disease that each of his predecessors has. Yes, I'm going to have a maximum pressure campaign. I'm going to talk smack about the Iranians. I'm going to tweet about the Iranians and be really, really tough. 
but secretly what I really want to do is sit down and talk to them, you know, shake the Ayatollah's hand. Well, you know, the funny thing is he, Kim Jong-un was so interested in sitting down with Donald Trump and developing a relationship because he really hated being isolated. And so Trump expected that maybe the Iranians would feel the same way. And what Ken just explained is that their entire being is caught up in hatred of America. And, you know, the reality is not every tin pot dictator out there wants to photo op with Donald Trump. Exactly. And, you know, the thing that that amazes me is, you know, I still see John Kerry uh, nuzzling with the Iranian foreign minister, Zarif, and and what Kerry and all of his... really, really horrible image. And and that, (laughs) if I may say, exactly what I feel like he does with him. It is ew. And, And their relationship was ew. Yeah. And a big part of that was a failure to understand that Zarif is the smiling, sophisticated face of a regime that doesn't want a better relationship with the United States. To use a Tisanism, if I may, all they want is our boot off their neck. That's a great that's a great way of putting it, Danny. Oh, why thank you. <laughs> I may adopt that as one of my uh, one of my catchphrases. Your signature phrases. <laughs> But, but seriously, but, no, I mean, what right. do you think? Don't you? Th- don't I? Don't think that people appreciate how much Donald Trump wants to sit down with Iran. So here's the thing. So in a lot of the cases where Donald Trump is doing the right thing in foreign policy, he's not necessarily doing it for the right reasons or out of a strategy. So Donald Trump correctly recognized that the Iran nuclear deal was a bad deal. That one of the reasons why he inherited an Iran that was on the march across the Middle East is because they were flush with cash uh, because of the Iran nuclear deal. You can actually look, there's a, the BBC has a, Iran, the story of Iran in six charts, and one of them is Iran's GDP growth. Right before the Iran nuclear deal, they had like negative 2% GDP growth. The year of the Iran nuclear deal, 12.3% growth. After pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, they're now at negative 3.9 last year, and they're going to be negative 6 this year. So they literally, in, in you can see how the nuclear deal took them up off the mat economically, allowed them to have the cash to spread support it's for Hezbollah, all the, Hezbollah, the Houthis, Hamas. Hamas so, so, cutting, so pulling out of that and putting on these maximum pressure sanctions is a good in and of itself. Yes. And Donald Trump is doing it because he wants to get a deal. He's never going to get a deal. They're never going to sit down with him. And that's fine. But the maximum pressure campaign, even if he intends it to to bring the Iranians to the table, it is a good in and of itself because it is starving the Iranians of the resources to spread mischief and spread terror and anti-American sentiment across the Middle East. There's another parallel with the Carter era and the subsequent debacles of our in our relationship with Iran. And that is that we acquiesced in the notion that the Shah needed to go at a certain point. Ken explains that it was much more complex than that. But at the end of the day, he left. You know, American troops didn't come in. Our Marines didn't shoot at the, you know, shoot at the crowds from the embassy. But we really never faced up to the fact that he was unpopular or asked the key question, okay, if he's unpopular, who would we rather have? Who would be better? How can we help the Iranians get to better? This is where we are now as well. We have a maximum pressure campaign. That's fine. At the end of the day, I think there are a lot of people in this administration, except the president, who would like to see the regime fall. Great. What do you want instead? Oh, but it, there's a difference here, Danny. It's a huge difference. Well, yeah, okay, obviously, right. but they, I'm they, just trying to but make I mean, a point. No, but it, well, I know you are, and I'm, your point is wrong. <laughs> the the <laughs> pro-American dictator of Iran was much better 
than the Islamic radical regime that replaced him. I don't know that there's anything that could be worse than the Islamic radical regime that's now in power. Oh, I, I do. Uh, I do. I do. There are things that could be worse, and we are well on track towards seeing them. But I, but I, th- I think that there's a broader issue, which is sort of what's flummoxed our Middle East policy since that day and t- until today. We talked with Ken about the Jean Kirkpatrick essay, Dictatorships and Double Standards. And what she basically was saying is that sometimes we, we have to deal with pro-American tyrants who are don't represent American values, but the alternative to them is not liberal democracy. It's something worse. Right. And we, as we saw in Iran. And so now we have this problem because in the Middle East, you know, we, do, would we prefer Sisi or the Muslim Brotherhood in power? Would we refer uh, the, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia or Sunni radicals to take over the, the peninsula? That's a immediate problem. But the larger problem is is that what we saw with the problem of the entire Arab Spring and post-Iraq invasion is that unlike Eastern Europe, and we're going to talk next week about the fall of the Berlin Wall with with Rick Grinnell, who's our ambassador to Germany, um, but in Eastern Europe, they loved us and they loved America because we always stood with the people against the regime. Right. And in the Middle East, we stood with the regime against the people very often. That was the and, point that and, I made rather less elegantly. Is and is, so, and so right. we and so we did it out of there was a necessity. But the problem is then is that that led that empowered a lot of Islamic radicalism. That empowered a lot of people who wanted to take that anti-American sentiment, combine it with the desperation of people in the in those regimes, and focus them on driving us out because that's what will lead to the collapse of these apostate regimes that they they call. And so we're in this conundrum in American foreign policy because on one hand. Yeah, we don't want the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to fall and be replaced by an al-Qaeda clone. But we also don't want the people of the Middle East to think that America is what's wrong with the world and and come after us like they did on September 11. Right. So we need a foreign policy that's actually a little more nuanced than authoritarians versus dictators, which is where I disagreed with Gene. But that is a topic for another day. It is indeed. All right. Happy anniversary. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> and our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.